Welcome to Splunk Talk, the only podcast that's all Splunk and no junk. I am your host, Hal, and that is... You did that again. You're Birch. <laughs> I'm, I'm Hal, you're Birch. Yes. Get it straight. Uh, this is season two, still, episode 38. And uh, today we're going to be joined by Jim Dunn, the director of Platform Field Solutions Engineering. But before we get into any of that, Mr. Hal, what have you got to say? Well, well, it's been interesting. It's been it interesting. Has? Yeah. Um, it's been um it's been a minute since we recorded. I want to do more of that. And I was thinking um, <laughs> you want to wait longer day. between recordings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want I want to you know, extenuate that out. Let's let's see how far we can push it. Um, no, no, uh, sort of the opposite, maybe. Let's see. I want to hear from y'all and I want to see if there's people that are out there that have things they want to hear. So mm. give us some ideas. You know, I think it'd be cool to kind of get feedback um, and do something with it, right? I know I have an idea of where to send that feedback already. I'm prepared, sort of. Okay. Um, but f- before I answer the question, um, what are your thoughts on that idea? Yeah, that's like? awesome. I know last time we did this, uh, we got some feedback. People wanted more, more technical uh, stuff, um, but I, it's always good uh, to get that feedback from the audience. So. Anyone, please feel free to direct it. Where do you, where do you want them to send it to? Our email, our Twitter, Slack. Our, Slack. our Slack. Ooh. Yeah. Blunk user groups is the Slack team. Um, if you go to, um, I didn't have the URL handy off the top of my head, but yeah. uh, you know, the splk.it slash something. Mm-hmm. There might be one slash Slack. We'll have to look and see and then maybe retroactively. I'll include it in happen. the show notes. That's smart. Some of you, many hundreds of, actually thousands of you are in the Splunk user groups um, Slack team already. There's a Splunk Talk channel. So reach out to us. Yeah, I love it. So I'll put that link in the show notes so you can click it on whatever device you're on and then you can stick it, that's the feedback, uh, in the channel. So click it and stick it. That's our campaign for feedback. Okay, I'm with you. That sounds good. Yeah. Um, Uh, Otherwise, what's up with you, man? uh starting to get cold not happy about that uh got some good good stuff good progress happening in the dev ecosystem space um so that's been that's been pretty awesome um what else is going on um let's see Mm -hmm. well on the weather front i mean you're in the northeast i'm not i'm in the south so the weather turning for me is pleasant because this is like, yay, and then oh, you got a break. Ninety percent humidity, and you know, eighty mid eighties, high you know, mid nineties kind of temperature. So yeah, yeah, I'm kind of like, yes, I can walk outside. That's kind of nice. How about how about from a tech side? Any any cool uh, new, yeah. especially Splunk related yeah. uh, things going on? Well, two. I'm okay, one Splunk what do you got? related and one that is not. Yeah. The one that is not. Have you ever messed with AI art generation? There's a bit of a thing going on. <laughs> I have a friend who's super into it. And every I'm time I talk friends. to him, he's telling me all about it. All right. And, I think uh, he and I need to talk so that I don't bore you to tears about it. Well, it's just whenever people talk about it, I'm like, I mean, it sounds it sounds interesting. And I'm trying to understand what what is fun about it. And then we started, there's one where like it's open and you can submit stuff. So we're like punching mm-hmm. in some terms and submitting things and see what generates he was yeah. taking his kids art and submitting it and having it render it as realistic yeah yeah art that was cool yeah i mean i'm a technologist is part of it so yeah. trying to figure this out and it's a total new space it's an, a reason it's an excuse for me to learn more about data science so ah. it's actually kind of like i will geek out about that and then secondly i suck at art like, so I can't do stick figures hardly, you know, so yeah. to me, it's like a, a new means of expression, you know, visual expression. So, yeah. you know, that's good. So the background that you're looking at behind my image, if, if y'all are watching the video, uh, hey, it could be Gandalf's office, right? You know, this is a just a crazy idea that I had and boom, it's kind of made real. So uh, oh, you had that created. Yeah. And it took that's like 20 awesome. seconds, you know, once you have some ideas about there's some yeah. uh, prompt engineering, they call it. Yeah. But let me kind of bring it back a little bit to, to Splunk, though, because I did want to have some Splunk related. Um, you remember 
way back at .conf. Way back. Um, One of the projects that came out is in a private preview. It's uh, it's called Edge Processor. And this is one of the projects that I'm, or the releases, that I'm tracking as as in my day job. Like it's, Mm. I'm putting a lot of emphasis on that and, and trying to help that team be successful and all that good stuff. It's cool. It's neat. It will ex- give some new functionality to customers um, before you index data. So we're talking about stream processing, edge processing. You, you kind of, uh, you can do routing, middle, fat, uh, masking, filtering, and there's things that we talked about at .conf and showed off. And people are in the private preview now, and there'll be a release soon. And and I can't talk about dates or anything. But the most interesting part about this is that it will have SPL two. Dose. No, mm. no, no, that's dose. Yeah, dose. dose. That's going to be a big deal. So I'm excited about that. And it's, you know, when it becomes real, it's getting realer every day because I'm tracking it. Yeah. So I'm excited about oh, it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, here's another thing to be excited about. We're now going to welcome our special guest for today's episode. Drum roll, please. Ba, 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 ba. And here comes Jim Don heading down the aisle, turning Turn on his on. audio in a fluffing that mustache. <laughs> oh, my camera did that thing where it exposes all the things I tried to hide from my camera. <laughs> oh, yeah, you got to hide that. You can try Ooh, to get it. Yeah. Oh, okay, there we one, go. two, three. And now hold, hold frame. Yeah, hold frame, hold frame. <laughs> if anyone's watching, anyone's just listening, we just, uh, we saw more of Jim's awesome workspace. Now, Jim, if I remember correctly, were you were you previously working from a small structure detached from your house yeah, that's where true. you kept zombie versions of your best friends a la Shaun of the Dead? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I don't actually you... remember that version of Jim. <laughs> your camera just blinked. I know. Oh, oh that's so funny. Otherwise, I'll just live with it, you know. But this is like um, my time. Zoom nightmare. Oh, we're gonna have to live with it. So now you that's see. That's fine. Those are the tools I use. Yeah. My toys that you're not supposed to see. So if you're listening to the audio, what what is awesome is Jim's got all the uh, sausage making accoutrement perfectly like out of frame for his usual meetings when Zoom is like zoomed in just right. And I think this is even better because it it gives us a lot more understanding of who Jim is. And I think that's really the best place to start this whole thing. So, Jim, welcome to Spunk Talk. Jim Don. Uh, we always love to, to start with uh, what I like to call your orange story, uh, which is your version of your origin story. How did you, director of platform solutions engineering, <laughs> end up here? Where'd well, you start your, your tech career? How'd you first learn about Splunk? How'd you fall in love? Awesome. Great question. Thanks. Um, well, many, many, many years ago, I was a Splunk customer. In fact, I was a Splunk customer for five years before joining Splunk. And I've now passed my tenure at Splunk. So I've been using Splunk for mm-hmm. all over 15 years. Wow. Yeah. Version three was just the brand new hot release when I first started using Splunk. Oh, wow. That's way back there. Yeah, yeah, that was when like it was single instance, right? Place, right? Well, reporting wasn't built into your search. You would search and then go to reporting window, and if you wanted to change that base search, you just had to start all over. (laughs) (laughs) It was a lot harder to use. Wow. Um, Yeah. So after being a Splunk customer, um, well, what what were you as a Splunk customer? What was that what were you doing? industry or, or your organization? What are you allowed there? to tell us? Sure. So I worked in network management, which is uh, basically you monitor the environment and you page people when things are broke, <laughs> which is like a great position to be in, the pager, not the pagee. And I did that um, with Splunk at two different places. Uh, I started off at Harvard University, and then I had a short stay over at MITRE, which is um, not MITRE the soccer ball maker, but the other one. So hold on, go back to Harvard for a second. Was there a moment at which, you know, uh, you were paging people, right? You were keeping the lights on like a janitor 
Did they let you in to actually attend college? You know, maybe there was some sort of dramatic moment that happened. You know, they sell you with that when you start there <laughs> at Harvard. They make it like, oh, yeah, for 40 bucks a class, you could just take whatever you want. And then you get there and you're like, I'm probably not qualified to go into any classes. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to concentrate on my career right now. And as soon as I have that sorted out, I'll go back to those free classes. And uh, you just never get around to it. Never, ever. But you did publish some works on Shakespeare. That's right. That's right. The Shakespeare app was the first app that actually published. And I published that as a sales engineer at Splunk when um, basically the challenge was, hey, write an app that generates discussion around Splunk. And that was it, right? And um, I actually got the idea from guys that I used to work with at Harvard when I came back there as the SE. You know, they, they sales said- Sales engineer. Yeah, sales engineer. Yeah, they said, hey, you know, we get that Splunk works on all this machine data, but show me on some regular data. And I'm just like, tell me what you really mean. And they said, well, the Gutenberg project has a list of all of Shakespeare's works. I want you to put that into Splunk and tell me how many times do they say, alas, poor, right? Something. Mm -hmm. And build out the stats for that. Ends out, alas, poor Yorick comes in tied around 13. I think it stack ranks as 13. But alas, poor lady is number one. Huh. And uh, yeah, while I was doing that, it was I found out a couple of neat things, right? Because you have to do field extractions and some really weird stuff to like, what I did is I made single events out of each one of Shakespeare's works. So I'm not a real Shakespeare guy. I just a data single analytics event. guy, right? So I can't like even thousands of, of characters of text per right. event. Okay. Per okay. event. Yeah. And so I had to sort of hack Splunk and change some of the limits to allow it to do that. And, you know, if you were to download the app, you could read Shakespeare's works inside of Splunk. You know, not that anyone ever really wanted to do that or is going to do that, but knowing that you can do that is kind of the fun part, right? Right, right. Yeah. And then, well, and that, my, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, like that's the point in, 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 in this project. I mean, that was the point. It was to get people to think outside of the box that they were in. And this was an application of an idea. Like, I've got a tool, it does a bunch of stuff. How can I relate, you know, to something else other than, the person doing the network, you know, like, how can I bring it outside of that space and have, you know, interesting conversations, uh, maybe valuable ones, we'll see. And, and now that's a way to do it. And that was back when we used to call them like aha moments, right? It was, it was, right. you know, those things where you see it in that meeting with the account team and you're like, wait, what? I can do what? <laughs> like, wow, aha. Exactly. Okay, so, so you threw down some Shakespeare app uh, that, but that was once you were here. So where'd we leave off on the timeline? You, you spent a bit at, uh, at MITER. MITER. Yep. Yep. And then you were like, I MITER join Splunk instead. Yeah. Well, the, the truth is that if the position was available at Splunk at the time I joined MITER, I probably would have never made it to MITER, but, um, you know, timing, you can't, can't time timing. Right. And so sometimes opportunities pop up you know, at inconspicuous times and you just have to take them, right? I would, I would like to, since you brought that up, that's one of my favorite- Are you going to play the jingle? Favorite life things is that when I was looking at coming to Splunk and I had only been at my prior employer briefly, I spoke to Jim and Jim said, you can't time life. You can't time opportunities just like you can't time tragedies and i was like wow this guy's brilliant i want to work with him <laughs> it turned out he wasn't as smart he must have taken it from someone else so in turn i now share that knowledge and pretend it's mine plagiarism beget plagiarism <laughs> that's awesome yeah the, just... the, like the thing i'm kind of hiding and i'll just come out and say it like it's, i only spent six months at, at miter and it wasn't because i didn't like miter it was actually a really really interesting place to work at it was just the timing of the opportunity at Splunk that had me leave. So yeah. what'd you do when you joined Splunk? I was a sales engineer in the Northeast. And so that meant at that time, we covered everything from the edge of New York City, where they didn't want to drive anymore, to Maine. Uh, not including New York State. Okay, gotcha. It's yeah. actually it a rather a large state. I mean, as far as states go. New York is big. Yeah, Massachusetts, New York is smaller. Rhode Island, smallest, probably. 
and then Connecticut's kind of teeny, but it's nice. You know, you can hit three, four states in a single drive in New England. Very cool. So what were some of the things that you learned as a sales engineer that kind of like help you out today? Good question. Um, first that people have a very wide variety of use cases for Splunk and that even if you had the same use case at two different customers, they would implement them in two different ways. Hmm. So like even when I was using Splunk as the customer, like what really drew me to it was the flexibility, right? We were using it to basically do all of the things every other application that we had wouldn't do. So we would use it as a glue in between the two and, um, you know, and fill in all the gaps. And then the more I was doing that, the more I wanted to just bring all event data into Splunk and make that like my manager of managers. And that was the path I was headed down when I left Harvard. Wow. That seems often like manager of managers. And I always thought it was silly because it was like, yes, we all have mom issues. <laughs> That's right. There's a shirt and it's, there's actually oh, a really? shirt. I'm trying to remember the actual um, tagline. I can't. Yeah. Um, but there is a Splunk tagline with, with mom in it. So uh, Jim, when you first came to Splunk as a sales engineer, mm-hmm. that is that was very interesting. But I think what everyone really wants to know is, is that Area 51 back there? What what arcade is are we seeing? That That is Tempest. Oh. So it's the original. It's not like one of the one-ups that are like a smaller version. It's original. Nice. Has like the old school vector graphics. So it's super bright and super fast. Um, but, you know, it's just wireframes. Wow. I actually played it earlier this week and got near my high score. But it, I don't know if I'll ever reach, reach it again. I bet you spend a lot of quarters on that thing. <laughs> I've yet to empty out the cash box. And that's sort of my, <laughs> like, I'm going to fill it until I run out of quarters because I bought a lot of quarters, right? Because I just got sick of doing like all the work. Oh, you didn't do the wiring to like turn that off? No, no. I like the, I like the idea of that's putting funny. money in. Like, uh-huh. and also I wanted it for my kids. Like they never, well, they kind of do tokens at Chuck E. Cheese's and things like that, but it's not the same. The, yeah. Like real money going in there. And then, you know, a very limited amount of time, you know, and the better you do, the more you get out of it kind of. Wow. Thing. Yeah. And it's like an investment. So one day you empty that out and suddenly, ta-da, I have a 401k. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was thinking more like maybe I'd have another one, but then the door wouldn't open. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. <laughs> um, okay. So sales engineer, you did that for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you helped bring me on board. And then you were like, oh, now that Birch is here, I don't want to be here anymore. So where'd you go next? Yep. I went on to be a Splunk Cloud architect. And um, that, that was how, like part of that transition was because I had um, a customer who was one of our larger customers move into Splunk Cloud. So I got a lot of really good experience with, with helping out with that migration. And, you know, it's sort of like after you do something like that, that's all you really want to do is cloud, cloud, cloud. And so that... I spent about four years there. So I was like four and a half uh, as an SE and probably four and a half as a Splunk Cloud architect um, before the next role. But So I want to pick on that sentence that you just said. Um, once you get into it, it's all you want to do, cloud, cloud, cloud. Do you mean that in the um, the selling sense and bringing you know the customers to that? Or do you mean the technology space? Like unpack that a little bit. Sure. So even if we roll back to like when I first started using Splunk when I was at Harvard, there's a friend of mine and also coworker. Um, we put it in together and he was the DevOps guy. So he handled all the hardware. He, he handled, you know, all the upgrades. He ran Splunk infrastructure. And then I would come along and do all the fun stuff, like build the apps. Right. And um, with Splunk cloud, it's almost the same kind of thing, right? We've got the Splunk cloud team gives you the architecture, handles all the upgrades, does all of the, the stuff that I don't like to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And then to me, it's sort of like, you just get all dessert and someone else eats all the crust on that sandwich. Right. And you can just play. So, all right. That makes sense. That that's pretty cool. But you just like, there's a, there's a, if, if we're doing all of that, why does there need to be a cloud architect? What are the mm-hmm. parts that you actually had to, get right and figure out with the customer. Oh, sure. Um, just like as you move to the cloud, it doesn't mean you're not going to need a local network, right? You're always going to have a local network. You're always going to have some sort of local servers. And that means you're going to have connectivity between whatever your on-premise data sources are, 
or maybe they live in the cloud, or maybe it's network gear that's scattered everywhere, right? You're going to have to build the design to send that data up to Splunk Cloud. And you want to do that as efficiently as possible to save time and money, right? So what were the things that, that Splunk Cloud at that time did well? And then maybe not so well, like what were, you know, because it's evolved over time. That's, I don't know how many years it's been now, you know, five, six, seven years, something like that. Yeah, for sure. So what the one part that it's always done really well is been able to ingest data. Like Splunk is first in class at ingesting data. Um, with Splunk Cloud, one of the challenges that we had in the very beginning was around app installation. And as an app developer, that was one that sort of hit me the most at first. I'm like, we need to figure this out. And that was- Do you know what I was doing at the time that you were experiencing that side? You were the developer evangelist. Yes, and I owned <laughs> the app vetting project for a period of time right then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it and, used to be, you know- And that's all now my mess. <laughs> yeah, that's And right. my team, my uh, peers. That's right. Yeah, so you know the process to get an app installed was fairly lengthy. The whole app vetting process was being introduced and new, so people would have to, um, you know, make changes to their app to make sure that they were secure enough to run in Splunk Cloud. And um, ha having done that for a while, it's really not that difficult to use. But what I, it was a very manual process where all the pieces were separated. And then about six months in maybe a little longer. That was when we were able to get app inspect put in line for, for app installations. So you would upload an application, it would automatically go through app inspect. And then if it passes, it would, you, you would click install and it would install the app. And that was a huge first step towards making. So what is your view on like, like, why is it so hard? Why is this, why can't the customer just install the app? What's the big deal? Mm. Yeah. Uh, what is the big deal? Yeah, <laughs> I'd say there's a few things. Um, first, we want to make sure that you're not doing things that will hurt you or the Splunk Cloud stack itself from a security perspective. Like when we look at App Inspect, I would say the majority of those checks are about security. Mm. You know, are you putting passwords in clear text? It happens, right? In fact, that first customer I told you about, the first application we put through App Inspect, they had all of their credentials in clear text for this custom version of webhooks that they were using. And that was like their ticket integration was this custom version of webhooks. And, you know, we turned around and we told them like, hey, um, you know, it was denied because you're passing, you know, your credentials in clear text. And, and by the way, they, change those. <laughs> yeah, they, they literally said, oops, we thought we fixed that. Came back a day later with a new version of the app and then it passed and it was installed. And what's kind of funny is like, I probably told that story a hundred times, right? Because it's true. But the more I tell it, the more I think maybe they were setting us up to see if we would allow mm. an application huh. into Splunk Cloud that would allow passwords and clear text because they, they fixed it immediately, right? Yeah. I, I think they had the fix just sitting there waiting to go in. That's interesting. interesting. Yeah. That's they one of my- you up. Yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite uh, stories was I think it was like Van Halen or something. They talked about it in the Freakonomics uh, books and series that they they had a rider, which is like a contract that goes along to the venue to say all the things that you want. And it was like, oh, I want, uh, you know, we need our pyrotechnics to be set up this way and that way. We need four microphones. We need water. We need a bowl of M&Ms and there cannot be any green M&Ms. And everyone like for years were like, these guys are insane. They ask for such ridiculous things. Like they want you to pick out every green M&M and it was signaling. And that was not the point. That was not the point. The point was when they showed up, if they didn't have a bowl of M&Ms without green, they knew that you didn't really read all their rider and they had very dangerous pyrotechnic stuff. Mm -hmm. So to Jim's point, like maybe this customer submitted this thing, put some bonk, you know, passwords mm -hmm. in there just to see how secure is this platform and how detail oriented was the, the process. And yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's awesome. Hmm, interesting. So uh, that's, that makes sense. That's a security perspective of like, you know, why is it, why can't we just, you know, put those apps in there? What else do you got? What are some other challenges that we have to figure out? Because I, I want to get the customers to understand like, you know, this is, if it were easy, we would have just done it. There's more. Right. Yeah, like, and I've got a, a technical one for you. If you want Jim. If you're going to interrupt me and just like steal the show, like you're some sort of co-host. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, okay, like fine. that. Fine. <laughs> well, there's there's uh there's sort of like this classic um debate that I don't think is debated anymore, but this thing on like how do you get how does a, a customer get their data to the cloud given traditionally they would just use universal forwarders, lightweight, uncooked data, lower on the network. Um, you know, when when Splunk cooks the data, it 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 actually is like endowing it with more metadata. So it goes from like 15% of its original size to like 45, you know, 50% or whatever. So it's more on the wire. It, it takes more processing time to send and to receive. Um, but on the other hand, a lot of customers don't necessarily want to be punching holes through their firewall right. all over the place for all these universal forwarders. So they route to a heavy forwarder. Um, you know, what, what's, what's your take on it? Like, that sounds like a, a very, almost a counterintuitive uh, challenge that y'all had to face. Yeah. So if we, you know, go back to the old days, we used to tell our customers, you know, keep it simple and forward directly to your indexing tier. Don't do any aggregation because you're introducing an unnecessary layer of forwarders and we didn't want to complicate things. But then with Splunk Cloud, it became very obvious that we really should be doing that for Splunk Cloud customers. We had introduced what's called the intermediate forwarder tier. And all it is is an aggregation point for all of your forwarding data that would then just get relayed to Splunk Cloud. And there are really three main reasons, which you pretty much nailed them. It's because people didn't want to have a lot of holes in their firewalls. Um, they didn't want to maintain those firewall rules, right? So if you bring on a new server, you decommission an old one. I mean, the last thing anyone wants to do is go back and take care of firewall rules. That's sort of stuff that, you know, over time, someone will get to it maybe. It's right? technical debt in yeah. the firewall yeah. layer. Oh, and it'll just continue to build until you have to fix all of it. Swiss cheese, yeah. Yeah. And then also it gives you um, a little bit of a, of a gap between your production servers and what is the internet. Right? Mm. You don't have to have direct connectivity to the internet from your production servers. They only have to connect to those intermediate forwarders. Then those intermediate forwarders, they have the firewall rules that will allow them to go out to the internet. So it's it's a layer of protection for those servers as well. So, but there's uh, some cases where some th that introduces another problem. You mentioned the single point of failure-ish kind of thing, um, uh, but also um, balancing of data be between the indexers. So you want to talk about that for a second? Sure. So there's a configuration at the intermediate forwarder tier that you're going to, want to put in place where, and professional services, by the way, will do this for you. But just be aware that we're going to calculate the number of indexers that you're going to hit, the amount of data that you're going to send, and we're going to increase the number of forwarding pipelines that you have that are active at the same time so that you can forward data to multiple indexers. Um, and the idea here is that you want to have proper data distribution across your entire indexing tier and not just saturate a handful of servers or a handful of indexers rather with that data. So then when you go to search the data, it happens fast. Mm. And okay. so increasing the pipelines is functionally equivalent to just having more heavy forwarders that send that data over. That's right. It's not much of a overhead to have additional forwarding pipelines on, on your forwarders. Compared so the number of having more servers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the number of yeah the number of servers at your intermediate forwarder tier is small compared to the total number of servers that you have forwarding data to it, and it's it's a very many to one type ratio, right? So if you have thousands of forwarders, you know, anticipate tens to you know maybe fifty intermediate forwarders, depending on how many thousands of forwarders you have. Wow. So. We, we've touched on some challenges with, you know, like deploying these apps and, and how they're different. You know, I wanted to like bring us up to where, where are we today? Like, has this gotten better over time as far as deploying apps? Sure. It's gotten uh, a lot better, but actually one thing I do want to do is just swing back around to you, Hal, and your question about the number two thing that happens with app inspect. Hmm. And what we also protect with app inspect is make sure that you're not going to put something, let's say in limits.com or something that changes the architecture of your of your Splunk Cloud stack, right? Oh, like changing your HTTP port or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. We're, we're not going to let you allow you to do that because you're going to be uh, inadvertently destroying your own environment, right? So we're trying to make sure that you don't shoot yourself in the foot with a lot of the checks that we have inside of App Inspect as well. But okay, Perfect. now back to um, how are things better today? Um, App Inspect is 
being upgraded to allow you to opt out of some of the man of the manual checks where you can take responsibility for them because when you go through app inspect you have three different lights that can come back you know green for you're good to go red for you have to go fix it and then the yellow light would be we need to manually look at this code that you wrote because well it's written by a human and we we can't trust it because we can automatically tell you what's good and bad about Splunk configs, but telling you what's good and bad about every Python script or every Perl script or shell script or whatever it is that you wrote it in, right? Because we're not too picky. We allow everything, you know, that, that takes people to look at it. So my and Python script labeled uh, definitely doesn't destroy server.py and inside <laughs> has the function does not rm-rf. Exactly. Uh, you you want to check that? <laughs> exactly. Whether whether you're inadvertently doing it or sometimes on purpose. Like uh, honestly, in the beginning, we would find people trying to build back ways to have SSH access into mm. or CLI access into their stack because people were used to doing it that way. When you manage on your own, it's different because it's all through the GUI uh, in the beginning of Splunk Cloud. Now we have ACS where you can do things programmatically. So it's that's What's also this ACS. The admin configuration system. Did I get the that's right? Service, I think. Service, yeah, yeah service. And yeah. and what tell tell us more. I mean, that sounds sure. So if you wanted to programmatically um, in, configure, let's say a hundred indexes, that would take a long time through the GUI, mm. right? And you can you can do that through ACS on your own. So you can basically ACS is a API gateway into your Splunk Cloud stack, which will allow you to programmatically interact with it. And we're using that, when I say we, I mean my new team, uh, we're using that as the tool that on the back end, which we're going to help automate some other things that will help customers get to Splunk Cloud, like app installations and data migrations. So ACS allows you to do a lot of like admin related functions at scale that you used to do on like the command line or even using the REST API, but now in a more safe way. It's, it's like the bumpers on the bowling alley that is just the the on-prem, you know, raw REST endpoints and command line. That's right. And it also gives you an opportunity to have access to things that you just have to open tickets for. Like mm -hmm. if you wanted to change your IP allow list and deny list, right? You're able to do that programmatically instead of opening a ticket and waiting. Oh, very cool. Mm -hmm. That is awesome. So you mentioned your team, but yeah. I know, Birch, you said something about wanting uh, to get in some apps. Maybe those are the same thing. Oh, well, before we leave here, Jim has a lot of fun apps and a lot of work apps. And I want to hear, hear about both of them. Um, also, Jim, I think you might, I don't know if this will come up organically. I think you either have- So I'm going to ham fist it just for yeah, it right now. You either have or know of a number of Easter eggs within our products. Oh, sure. So um... where do you want to start? <laughs> we want to hear about your team, your apps. And your Easter eggs. All right, I'll tell you about my apps, a couple different apps. So one of the apps that I wrote is um, the analysis of Splunk-based apps. And we simply take down data from uh, Splunk-based and all the metadata about all the apps, so everything but the payload. And it allows you to search them locally. So you don't have to walk around with like a spreadsheet of what does every Splunk app do on Splunk-based, which was literally a request from a customer. Uh, and so instead of giving that spreadsheet, I built the app. and I then was for an internal project working on turning that app into a recommendation system that would allow you to you know, automatically recommend apps based on what you have installed and what you're looking for. And um, as part of that process, someone approached me and said, you know, hey, if you can Easter egg something funny in there, um, I'll just vote for your app, whether it's good or not. So, <laughs> so, I, so I built it, right? And so I continue to put them in there, right? They're not always the same kind of Easter egg, but if you, uh, Play around with some of the apps in some weird ways. You'll you'll find some fun stuff in them. I don't really want to give them away. I, right. People find them on their own. Yeah. Um, but uh, another app that I wrote uh, was I think it was the end of last year. Uh, well, around December was like when Wordle was was out and became big, right? And I'm I'm a big fan of playing you know dictionary based games. So Scrabble, right? Actually, pretty much just Scrabble because <laughs> I like Scrabble more than Words with Friends because it's the original right but um when i saw wordle come out i'm playing it i'm playing it i'm playing it and well first of all the good thing and the bad thing about it is that you know you can only play it once a day and 
every time I'm playing it, I'm like, oh my God, I could write this in Splunk. This would be so easy to write in Splunk. And so I did, right? So I, I wrote my own version of Wordle inside of Splunk. So I call it Splurtle, right? Just merge the two names together. And um, that was an interesting journey. Uh, took me about a, a long weekend to write the app, but it took me about four months to get through Splunk Legal. To get <laughs> oh my <published>. gosh. <laughs> and um, what I was most worried about was the name because it's very close to Splunk, right? And I thought they'd say like, no, no, this is going to damage our, you know, our reputation or our name brand if we don't want you to do that. that that floated right by the thing that they were hung up on was the dictionary uh, and the dictionary that i used um i didn't filter it the one for wordle is filtered and the one for wordle the author goes through and went and basically said these are the words that we use day to day most often so these are gonna be the easiest to guess so they're the ones i'm gonna use right there are and i was sort of like well to make sure that mine's enough different than the author's version I'll just keep all the words in there. And you you just down like you didn't make a list. You downloaded yeah. an existing like dictionary list, open source, yeah, free to use. Uh, like we checked all those boxes. What and so this free to use list doesn't necessarily filter out words that may be fine in one culture but not in another even. Right, right. They're let's say potentially offensive, right? Yes. And my argument was, well, it came from a dictionary and there's a dictionary in every library that I know of, right? So every, you know, if you're worried about a third grader. Why, why a, must we be word, the arbiter here at this time? Yeah. And, and who am I to say what's offensive or not offensive? I didn't want to get into that game. Right? Who am I to say? Did you say, alas, poor lawyer? Who am exactly. I to say? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah. So um, what, what I did is I actually just went back to the internet and spent a, you know another day searching for a cleaner dictionary and i found one that was actually made for scrabble and mm. so it wasn't the wordle one because someone had found the wordle dictionary and published it but it wasn't published in a way where i could reuse it you know and get it through legal but i found one that was like that for scrabble so it's not an identical match but but it works and, and so it got published yeah wow and uh Okay, so how many apps do you have now? Oh, honestly, I don't know. Um, when when You've I lost count it, enough. Yeah, right? and there's there's plenty that I didn't publish, right? Like there's that you're a contributor on. Well, not even that, but like we have some internal apps that, um, like there there was a situation where uh, we needed to vote on stuff, and what we used to do is, hey everybody, here's the Slack um, thread, give us a thumbs up or thumbs down, and what we really needed was a blind voting system. So I wrote an app that's basically a blind voting system and it allows you to vote and then you can never see your vote again, right? You can vote multiple times, only your last vote counts so you can change it and, and things like that. And it quite honestly changed the, the output of that program because when you see public thumbs up and thumbs down, it really directs people who might be on the fence one way or another mm. in a direction, right? And so now it's truly a blind vote where you get more honesty from the contributors well, from the voters about people's, uh, while well, we were evaluating projects. So about the projects that were in front of us. You know, that's an interesting um, real world problem because you're very right. At, like in, we're all in the USA and our elections are, are televised. And so there's like reporting and progress updates. And mm -hmm. so often it's said that by the time the election hits the West coast, it like, it doesn't matter. And so it generates like apathy um, you know, people don't feel like their, their votes count equally. There are other countries where they do blind voting. Um, they don't, they're not allowed to report or say any results until it's, until everyone has had an equal opportunity, um, mm -hmm. to vote. So yeah, definitely a, a very real problem at both the Splunk voting level, as well as global politics. Yeah. And what's actually kind of interesting, and by the way, I should mention that Virtually, I'd say 99% of every app that I work on, I collaborate with other people because I reached the end of my technical abilities and I have to call in for help. And so um, when I first built the app, it was semi-blind, but if you were to look at the Splunk jobs and reverse engineer it, and you were a security guru who might've left, right? He might come back and be like, hey, here's who everyone voted for. I'm like, come on, man, you're supposed to be a responsible <laughs> citizen, right? Yeah. And so I had to get some help. And actually, we took some things that were used in bots and we put it inside of the voting app that made sure that, well, basically the way it works is that when you vote, 
that vote is submitted as a user that has more more um, permissions than you do and it'll put oh. the results of it into a kb store you don't have access to and so and then i've also updated another kb source separately that just says you voted or you didn't vote so we know that who's participated and who hasn't but we don't know how they've participated and so, so um, does that mean I, i've done a similar app i have the like request workflow app where it's really just forms kind of like you did uh less pretty ui uh, and it saves as summary indexes. And so then you just search on whatever was deposited into the summary index. Mm -hmm. Now that's like uh, trivial because it's just using like the collect command when you click the button and stuff. Yep. But it sounds like you, you, you've got them using a different user account. How did you implement that? Like, is, is it kicking off a search or something? So yeah, the, the user's pre-configured on the server. So we have to do this from a very specific server or you had to have it mm. configured a certain way. And then it's a script that gets called when we when you execute, well, you hit the button to submit your, your uh, search or well, you submit your vote, which really is submitting a search that's run by a Python script. And that Python oh. script runs it as that elevated user. So uh, much more complex. That's awesome. Well, that's why I needed help, right? I couldn't do yeah. that. I'm just not a Python guy. I'm too old. <laughs> <laughs> do you consider yourself a developer? You know... A Splunk developer. Really, well, a Splunk developer, sure, but I've I've worked in the real world around real developers, and I know I'm not one of them, right? Like I, when I so before I started working, you know, the jobs I told you about, I used to work at a large bank, and a guy who sat like four, you know, cubes away from me, he was a true developer, also a brilliant network architect, and I would sit there working on scripts, and I would bang my head against the wall for three days not being able to figure out a thing but when i finally exhausted everything that i could as far as like researching it i'd walk over to him and i'd say hey joe what am i doing wrong and he would turn around and in 30 seconds have my answer and i'd feel a little bit embarrassed but then also very happy that i had a guy like that i could go to and learn from right and so i know i'm not a developer like joe right yeah. well it's funny i mean you you learn about how different people's brains work differently you know, yeah. there, there's different structures inside of the brain and he's better at this thing. You're better at that thing. And yeah, I, I think there's, um, has something to do with abstractions, uh, you know, ability to work with abstractions and, and, you know, math. And if you're really strong at those, you can be a, a great developer, but it's not like a hundred percent one-to-one relationship. But like, if you don't have that, it's super hard and you're probably not going to want to be a developer. Yeah. Well, I mean, my, like my personal background, you know, I, took physics in college, right? It really has nothing to do with programming other than some of our labs we had to use Mathematica and, and do a little bit of programming, right? Like I was never officially schooled with about code other than when I picked up a book and would read it. Well, and I think it's interesting that you are probably one of the most authored, one of the people with the most apps on Splunk base, and yet, you know, you don't identify as a, a developer. And I think that's part of like a larger conversation my my team is spearheading around what it means to build things um so we'll uh that'll be sort of foreshadowing for a future discussion hal and i will have but back to jim uh so you've got a bunch of apps let's make sure i do have to yeah. interrupt and tell you that yeah namish has the most out there right oh yeah <laughs> by far <laughs> so namish has so many apps that i also i think created the seinfeld app that we submitted that's right. Uh, and it was in, we were, we joked with Namish lovingly that he has so many apps. Some of them are just out there just so that he can have more apps. So like Seinfeld, we Seinfeld said like he has a TV show that's about nothing. So we had an app that was about nothing and it was just a dashboard that said like Namish <laughs> and we submitted that. Yeah. I don't think it was ever approved, but I now have access to go and find it. <laughs> well, now you can approve it for yourself. <laughs> yes. Yes. Actually, we I we are not allowed. That's that's a rule uh, I've implemented on my team. We're not allowed to self-approve our own apps. Oh, that's funny. That's yeah. well, a good good check and balance. Yeah. Um, okay. So you have parlayed this uh, into this sort of pedigree of you know prior experience as a customer, experience as a sales engineer turning um, challenges that customers have into apps so you can show those aha moments, those proof of values, those like, wow, I could really do this. Then you become a cloud architect where you're growing empathy towards how do I help my cloud customers get you know, into the cloud more successfully, be it faster or more efficiently, what have you. 
then you create something that you know what I'm talking about. You know, Hal knows what I'm talking about. And I would say that then rocket launched you into the job that you have today, even. I'd have to agree, right? Um, I, I'll say this, like as, as someone who's written stuff, right? Nothing feels better when people use that stuff, right? Um, there, there are some things that I've written that I still think are brilliant that no one's really adapted. And it's probably because I didn't put it in a way, like the presentation layer wasn't built for other people who didn't know exactly what I was trying to do, right? Like when I, when, like when I wrote my own NCCM, right? Like a version of Rancid, right? Something like that, right? But anyway, so what, back to what you're talking about. Um, part of the job as a cloud architect is you have to figure out who's a fit for Splunk Cloud and who's not a fit for Splunk Cloud. And if you're not a fit, we'll take you to the, what we call the deal desk and see if there's a way that you could possibly be a fit, right? Uh, it doesn't always work out, but there was data that we would want to collect beforehand because if you were right on the edge, you know, maybe if- What does just, that mean to not, to not be a fit? Like not working uh, out enough? Yeah, <laughs> guilty. But uh, <laughs> like uh, maybe your data volume is too great. If you're like, a, if you're indexing half a petabyte worth of data a day, um, if you want a single stack, we're not gonna be able to do it. But if you wanted to have five 100 terabyte stacks, we could do it. And, and just it to clarify, that's not necessarily like a technical limitation of Splunk's products that that limit it's more that like you fall outside of like the sort of it's worth our while cost well, it's, it's a right? service I would call it a service yeah limit as opposed to a product limit. A product limit yeah well yeah we so we developed a sweet spot in Splunk Cloud because at the very beginning um we would take on customers that we weren't sure whether or not we could support them and we had a few customers that had a bad experience and there was a decision made that we had to make that end, right? And to make that end, we developed a sweet spot that said, if you don't fit within these guidelines, we're really not going to take you on, right? Unless we don't want to spend 80% of our time on, you know, 20% of the actual customers. Well, yeah. And we want them to be happy, right? Yeah. I mean, unhappy customers are no good, especially when you're on a subscription base where you renew every year because you'll just leave. Right? Yeah. So yeah. it doesn't do anything for the relationship that we have with the customer either. Well, nothing positive, right? It does something to it. Well said. Uh, yeah. And so, so basically um, someone asked me like, Hey, why don't we have an app that tells us whether or not customers are ready for Splunk cloud or not? And I sort of oh. said, there, like, so they're basically like filling out the doctor's forms on like, how many apps do you have? What is it? Like yeah. what's yeah, well, your data volume? I actually used to work that deal desk and originally they would say, well, just ask questions that you've seen in the past. And I was like, well, all right, I built this form. Right. And then I would email it out and it was like, well, just a bulleted list of questions. Yeah. And, and then it became a bulleted list of questions with a few That's searches true. in there because yeah. people would say, well, how do I figure that out? And it's like, well, you know, if you ask, hey, how many concurrent searches are you, did you run yesterday at, you know, in between nine and 10? Uh, what's the max? Like you would come back with 10 different answers if you asked 10 different people on the same exact stack, right? And so we had to standardize those kind of searches, which, you know, they're basically KPI searches, right? Key performance indicators. Uh, what's happening in your stack, but it's nothing more than a Splunk search. And so um, I, I took the challenge. And the reason why I knew we had been talking about it for over a year before the challenge was given, but the reason why I didn't do it was because, well, it would have to run on every single version of Splunk that we have supported or not, because that's what's out in the wild. Then I'd have to um, make sure that the searches I was putting out there were truly the right ones right? Then you'd have to be the expert in all things search. And I didn't really want to take that on right by myself. But it ended out that as I was building this out, it was immediately a collaboration with a ton of other people, like especially professional services. Because when I said, all right, here's the things I would like to gather to figure out whether or not you're a fit, they came by and said, oh my God, we need that information. And we need this other information. And when we have that, we can then take that, the results of that data, and we can tell you approximately how many PS hours would it take mm -hmm. to do the migration as it sits. And so that's how we set off with the with the SEMA, so the Splunk Cloud Migration Assessment. And so that was its original intent, right? Was to collect data about the customer's environment and then allow us to collect it in a way where the data did not contain any PII and we would store it centrally inside of Splunk so that sales engineers, customer success engineers, professional services people, you know, could people associated with that account could all see the data and use the same data to make determinations about what's going to happen with the account. Uh, because I was literally, when I worked with that same customer, I remember they, they were ones that called us out on it and they said, you know, 
professional services came in and just asked us for, you know, spent a day with us asking us questions and half of them were the exact same questions you asked us. Don't you guys talk to each other? Mm. Right. And the embarrassing honesty is that we didn't back then or we were supposed to, and I didn't do it. Right. One of those two. And so this, this makes it so that we're all using the same data to, you know, about the same customer. So we all have the same vision. Right. Well, and back then it was like, you go to a doctor and they're like, oh, where does it hurt? Where does it this? Okay, we'll do some x-rays. Then you go to the next one and they're like, yeah, I don't really trust their work. I don't know under what conditions. I'm going to redo it all. I want it done my way. So PS right. is the same way. And now when you've made it uniform with like, you run this search, it's bound by these time parameters and it is what it is. They know exactly how you got there. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So uh, how complicated is it? is it to do one of these migration projects that you have to have you, that you had to go through this effort to build these, this tooling? Like, is it the technology? Is it, is it Splunk? Is it the customer? Like, like why is it this difficult? Well, so um, there's a couple of things that we achieve by doing this. So we have about 70 checks, let's say there's like 68 and we may reduce it, but those checks aren't going to be necessary for every single customer, but by collecting that data, we know that there's not a gotcha that's going to happen that didn't get exposed during discovery. Like for instance, maybe you didn't know that they had 5,000 apps installed in their environment or that they had 10,000 users. Right. And then at the very end of it and PS goes to show up and they find out and they're, they're, you know, throwing their arms up there going, what the heck, this is going to take extra time. And now they want us to do the work for free because we didn't scope it right things like that. So the challenge is also that Splunk on-premise or Splunk bring your own license or customer managed platform, whatever you want to call it, right? We have some guardrails, but not really, right? As a customer, you can do whatever you want with Splunk. And that's really kind of the strength. And like you said before, you could implement the same use case, but in any innumerable different ways. Exactly. It's kind of like Legos, right? Like you can build a spaceship a billion different ways, right? And then when you're like, well, I want the Splunk Cloud spaceship, it might not look like the spaceship you had. So we have to make sure that we're going to at least, you know, give you an airlock chamber and all the things that you need. Did you forget other space. spaceship things after airlock yeah. chamber? Well, all I was thinking about was everybody always jettisons people out of the airlock. So I well, you got it. Yeah. Thing to have, right? Yeah. yeah. And the navigation system, I don't know, food replicator. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a potty. Uh, so. I know we're uh, we're we're up coming up to to time. I want to make sure we also hear about your current team and and, and that mission. Yeah, awesome. Thanks. So um, I'll just get right to it. Right. So the team that we have uh, primarily works on the SCMA and its expansion. Right. So mm, so you did launch that into it. Okay. Yeah. So um, not only are we collecting the data and putting it together, but with this data we can now do more things with it. Like we can help you as a customer, either self-prepare or give PS extra tools to prepare you and migrate you. So we're trying to build uh, self-service migration tools inside of the SCMA. And we're starting off by looking at how do you migrate data and how do you migrate apps? So what's you're gonna see soon is with applications, you're going to be able to first identify which applications you use inside of the SCMA prioritize those as the ones that you're going to migrate to the cloud, send them automatically in batch to app inspect. So, you know, you can send a hundred, you can send a thousand, doesn't matter. App inspect will take them. The report will come back. And then once that report comes back, all the ones that have passed uh, that meet certain criteria, like it has to be a private app without a local directory today, um, we'll be able to move those automatically to your Splunk cloud stack. And that was the real goal when we put the team together like if we want to help automate Splunk Cloud migrations, we're gonna need a team to do it. That was our main focus. And so we're finally getting there with applications and data will be the next thing that we tackle. Um, but like I said, there'll be phased approach for this because um, there are many different ways or different types of apps, right? So you've got public apps, you've got private apps, you've got apps with local directories, you've got apps without local directories. And then you have apps that are gonna either go to the Victoria experience of Splunk or go to the classic experience of Splunk. And all of these things require different programmatic paths. So we'll chop them down one at a time. And with the tools that we have, you know, we're, we'll make that happen. And like I mentioned earlier, we rely heavily on ACS for that. And the ACS team has been great as far as helping us get the uh, 
features that we need to make this happen. So how is it different what you're doing and who you interact with versus what engineering is doing, you know, working on the back end of Splunk Cloud and those, those you know, features which uh, impact every customer? Yeah, so we work directly with customers and with the field to make sure the things that we're building will solve problems that we see immediately, right? Like we have an internal Slack channel. If anyone has any problems with, you know, through using the SCMA end-to-end, we're there to answer it. And here's a simple example. Uh, yesterday, somebody had a had an SCMA output that when they tried to import it, uh, it didn't show up in our internal dashboards. And the root cause was that the export time wasn't just an epoch timestamp, it was epoch timestamp followed by a comma, a space, and then three zeros. That comma space three zeros blew up the import process because it screwed up our date, right? Uh, in the same day, we fix the code, it will be available in the next release. We've never seen it before. We don't know that we'll ever see it again, but we know that we won't see it again because basically we put a Rex in front of it that says, let's make sure that this timestamp that we're expecting looks exactly like we want it to. And we're still not sure why this one server, which, and this is probably just a red herring, happened to be in Canada because we haven't seen this with any of our other Canadian servers. Uh, we you can always with... blame Canada. <laughs> That's right, another t-shirt. <laughs> but, um, you know, and there's some, you know, things that we never thought about, like multilingual support, like seems to be working without a problem. We've, we've caught a few things here and there. But th- those are the kinds of things that we address immediately. Uh, product engineering inside of Splunk, they're working on core Splunk features. So um, they would be more like the ACS team that I keep mentioning um, that that's building things that all customers will use all the time. Do you, do you ever want the things you're working on to be like driven by that engineering side? But then it would kind of move away from, you know, you who is passionate about this. So there are solutions that get developed that absolutely should go over to engineering. Like, let's say we had an enhancement to a TA that helped, um, actually, this just happened this week as well, uh, an enhancement to a TA that supported HA, where it doesn't natively. Um, because we apply, we've applied the fix for one customer or maybe two, um, we shouldn't own that. The TA oh. owner should own that, right? Yeah, so it's kind of like that. adding a contribution back, like a, like the open source kind of world. Yeah, exactly. But these customers yeah. needed it because they were doing a migration and it was part of their requirements, right? So we don't always get involved in stuff like that. But I mean, we want our customers to be successful. So we do pick up stuff like that when it comes around. But when it comes around specifically to things like internal SCMA or where do I see it going, um, I kind of want to have control over the direction where it goes, uh, who writes the code. I really like my team. My, my team <laughs> is, uh, quite honestly, I, I like to refer to them as my Ocean's Eleven team because each one is a crack oh. expert in their own field, right? So I've got my, you know, my lock pick. I got my getaway driver. I got my pickpocket, right? But got them all. And um, which they, is the Brad Pitt character who's just always chewing on something? You got that guy too. But. <laughs> I think in every we scene all, in all, we all of the fight movies, over who's Pitt and Clooney, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's funny because one day I, I tried to take our heads and Photoshop them on top of it. Yeah. And I was like, uh oh, now I got to pick who's who. Oh, no. Yeah. And it, it ended the project. I'm like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be the guy that says, I'm Brad Pitt, not you. Yeah. Well, you could be Ed Norton and then you get to be both. Spoiler alert. <laughs> True story. Hey, now. <laughs> I'm still catching up. I'm halfway through season one. Uh, that was more of a Fight Club. Fight Club I know. I know. Oh, okay. I know that was intentionally awkward. Oh. <laughs> if it's your first Splunk Talk podcast. Although seriously, though, um, Lost. I'm. I'm. Sometime I am going to get past season uh, one, episode four, which is I think where I left off. Oh, I think I got three minutes into episode one <laughs> of Star Wars. I mean. Um, cool. So like last few minutes here, where, where do you see, uh, the future going and, and how I want to, you know, don't want to discount it. Any questions you had there? Yeah. So, um, well, a few things, uh, one we've, you know, um, 
one of the team members is the lead developer and creator of the new version of the chargeback app. Mm. And we're going to make that part of the ecosystem. We actually had one customer who is a fairly large customer that says, I want to know exactly what every department's using. We're going to migrate them to Splunk Cloud one department at a time. Now, there's no other tool at Splunk that I'm aware of that gives you business hierarchy other than the chargeback app. And oh, by the way, it also happens to look exactly at what are you using, right? Each department, what are they using? So um, we're going to build in a way to make that a little simpler for customers to do if they'd like to choose that path. You know, they'd still run the SCMA, but the, char the chargeback app is going to give us more insight about their utilization. Um, we're also, this is more of an internal thing. We're redesigning the way that we uh, scope out what the Splunk stack should look like that you would migrate to. To be very specific about what your immediate needs are, and um, it will ex expose more of what you will get from your stack than just saying like, "Hey, you get a thousand SBCs of compute, right?" We're we're going to try to give a little more information around what you can expect around that, and then further down the line, we're looking at using like a search-based repository for all of our apps that would. You know, you can, because like you can look for searches inside of Splunk, but then you're inside a different app context and things like that. But having a search repository that would allow you to schedule them and have them leave their data in certain indexes, and then you could just pick up that, the, the results and put those into any application that you'd like. That's something that we're looking at because a lot of the applications that we're building reuse the exact same searches. And hmm. so instead of rewriting them and updating them in multiple places, we want to maintain them in one place. And then there's things that like the chargeback app looks at that's very similar to what we do in the CMC. So why wouldn't we collaborate and bring in the searches that the CMC is using and put them there? And if you're a developer, you could build your own monitoring console from a variety of uh, you know, data sources developed by different teams. Very cool. So I think it's safe to say that you are pretty passionate about innovating. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> so um, maybe closes out really quickly with um, hackathons. Um, I know you participated in a, a Hack Week project here, here at Splunk uh, as a judge. Uh, just tell us briefly about that. Yeah, it was super cool. Um, there are about 100 different submissions. Uh, you, know, you don't get to see them all as a judge. You get a chunk. And uh, the ones I went through on Saturday were, were, were all really interesting. There were like a lot of different ideas on how can we both either uh, be a, more efficient at what we're doing in, internally at Splunk, but then also there were ideas that would say like, this feature should be added to what we have in Splunk Cloud or Core Splunk that makes it much more usable. And those ones I was actually most interested in because I, I like changes that get to touch our customers in a, you know, in a positive way that make them want to use Splunk more, make Splunk more usable, right? You know, like we've talked about in the beginning, like, hey, search and reporting used to be two different windows and they were not tied to each other bi-directionally. Right now it just happens beautifully in one little spot and you wouldn't think it was ever any other way, but you could, I don't know if they're publicly available, but you could download version three and see what it's like. It was wow. it's a lot different than today. So did anything jump out as just a really interesting idea you want to highlight? Um, I'm kind of afraid to because I didn't get to see them all. And I talked to another guy on my team who was also a yeah. judge. And he saw, he saw things I definitely didn't because we were exchanging in our team call about like what we thought was most interesting. Um, okay. I, I just love that we're uh, doing it. You know, that right, type I'll, of thing is important to, you know, like keep innovation going. All right, I'll, I'll mention two. Is that all right? You think it's okay? Or do you think it's too risky? What if, what if they don't make it? Well, that's okay. So one of them was having- uh, Oh, none of these. Oh, so, so to clarify, yeah. none of these and any of the stuff that Jim said his team is working on are, you know, uh, things that are guaranteed roadmap. You know, Splunk could change its mind, shift priorities based on business needs. So no one should make any purchasing decisions based on <laughs> any of the discussions in, in these or any other of our ridiculous podcasts. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Except for the part about Brad Pitt. Jim is definitely bad. Brad Pitt. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'll take it. So yeah, there was, there was one where building a, a maintenance calendar right into your Splunk Cloud stack, which would allow you to see your, your uh, maintenance calendars as they come up or your maintenance mm. windows as they come up. And then also allow you to download a calendar event so you can put it on your personal calendar or work calendar so that you know when it's going to happen, you know, in your day-to-day -day business as well. That, that was probably my favorite one. 
Um, there was another one that would allow you to search uh, the configure the aspects inside of um, well, I forget what it's called. You know, uh, we dropped down the drop down the upper right hand corner that you hit when you the go to like yeah the settings right. Yeah. So that's not searchable today. Right. Putting a little search window inside of there that had this really fast zippy search engine. Oh, that, cool. That would bring it up. So if you type macros, you don't have to go advanced rule. search and yeah. yeah oh man. Bring it right up. Yeah. All right. That Did one's top. I, I want that one. I want yeah. that one now. That one's awesome. And again, right, those well, are all hacks. They're not like things that we're actually working on. They're just it's fun project stuff. Right, but pretty cool. So though, Jim, right? you didn't you didn't mention my team's hack. I I'll take it personally. I'll just tell you that I didn't see it. Okay, for sure. I'll show it to you after. <laughs> yeah. Hey Jim, Good this has been a great conversation. Um, I know we're out of time, yeah. but thank you so much for coming on, and hanging out with us, and kind of exploring the space. Hey, thanks really for having it. me. It was, a, it was a good time. I think we all can say that today we went a little bit from knowing or hearing of James Don to now being familiar enough to call him Jim Don. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's awesome. all right, thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. Happy spunking. <laughs>